And whether you know it or not, each and every one of us as Christians is in a fight. Whether you want to be or not, there's a war going on between good and evil in the world around us and even in our very own lives and hearts. The Apostle Paul knew of this battle and this struggle all too well. And when he wrote to a group of believers in the city of Ephesus, he wanted to remind them of the struggle that they were involved in and that he himself was involved in. And so through the second half of that entire letter, he encouraged them to keep walking with Christ. There were going to be things that came to knock them down, to set them back, but all the while he wanted them to persevere and to endure. Last week we looked at what walking with Christ means in terms of walking in light. We're not called to walk in darkness as believers. We're called to walk in the light of God's truth. This week, as we think about some of the words from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5, 15 through 17, when he said, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. When we think about those words and his challenge to walk in wisdom, we understand that if we want to walk with Christ, we have to walk in wisdom. If we want to walk with Christ, we have to walk in wisdom. God's will is that each and every one of the people he has created would come to know his son, Jesus Christ, so that they might become children of God who walk in wisdom. Other than Jesus himself and perhaps King Solomon, there's not been a wiser person in history than the Old Testament character Job. And man, let me tell you, that guy had to raise a hallelujah more than once in his life. You see, Job was a man who lived during the time of the Hebrew patriarchs, Jacob and Joseph. Before the law of Moses was ever written and before the establishment of God's temple... But nonetheless, he came to discern the righteousness of God, and he worshipped him faithfully and sacrificially. Job might not have been a descendant of Abraham who enjoyed the blessings of that family's covenant directly, but he was a man who received blessing from the Lord and chose to bless God's name in spite of the curses he endured during his lifetime. Job was one of the wealthiest men of the ancient eastern peoples until virtually everything that he had was taken away from him. Job was also a man of great character and personal integrity who loved and worshipped the one true God. Satan himself had even taken notice of Job's faithfulness and of his life and how Job honored God always. Satan was allowed to meddle with Job, to mess with him. Satan thought so that he would destroy Job and Job's faith in God, but God knew that it would prove his own greatness in Job's heart and life, even in spite of great personal tragedy and turmoil. In one day, one day, all of the flocks of Job's sheep, camels, oxen, and donkeys were stolen. All of his servants, except for four, 
were killed by his enemies. And all ten of his children died in a windstorm. But that was only the beginning of difficulties for Job. You see, it was hard what happened to him. But in the ensuing days, Job would suffer severe personal illness. So much so that it was painful for him to even stand up or sit down or lie down. He had to listen to his own wife, discredit his faith and his trust in God, and tell him to his face, Job, you might as well die. Your life is so bad. And then he had his three most trusted friends question his personal character and his righteous integrity. Yet in the midst of all these trials and tribulations, Job still trusted in God. Sure, he was confused about why he experienced so much loss in his lifetime. And yes, he even questioned why God would allow these things to happen to him. But he remained faithful to believe that God is faithful. I want you to listen to these words that Job either wrote or recorded on the subject of wisdom. In Job chapter 28, it's a poem about wisdom about how to obtain it. Job chapter 28. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place where they refine gold. Iron is taken from dust and copper is smelted from rock. Man puts an end to darkness and to the farthest limit he searches out the rock in gloom and deep shadow. He sinks a shaft far from habitation forgotten by the foot They hang and swing to and fro, far from men. The earth, from it comes food, and underneath it is turned up as fire. Its rocks are the source of sapphires, and its dust contains gold. The path that no bird of prey knows, nor has the falcon's eye caught sight of it. The proud beasts have not trodden it, nor has the fierce lion passed over it. He puts his hand on the flint. He overturns the mountains at the base. He hews out channels through rocks, and his eye sees anything precious. He dams up the streams from flowing, and what is hidden he brings out to the light. But where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value. Nor is it found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me. And the sea says, it is not with me. Pure gold cannot be given in exchange for it. Nor can silver be weighed at its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir. In precious onyx or sapphire. Gold or glass cannot equal it. Nor can it be exchanged for fine articles of gold. Coral and crystal are not to be mentioned, and the acquisition of wisdom is above that of pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. Where then does wisdom come from? And where is the place of understanding? Thus it is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the sky. Abaddon and death say, with our ears we have heard a report of it. 
God understands its way. And He knows its place. For He looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When He imparted weight to the wind and meted out the waters by measure. When He set a limit for the rain and a course for the thunderbolt. Then He also saw it and declared it. He established it and also searched it out. And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. Is that not a beautiful poem on wisdom? Even more so, is it not a good road map for direction on wisdom? See, this just isn't a poem that we read because it sounds pretty. It's a poem that's beautiful because of the lesson that it teaches. And when you go back and analyze this poem, you find that the author uses three metaphors to describe the search for wisdom. The first is in verses 1 through 11. That's of digging in mines, bringing up that which is hidden deep below the surface in rocks. The second is in verses 12 through 19. It's buying, selling, trading in the marketplace. The third is in verses 20 through 22. It's when you find out something through personal experience. You reflect back on circumstances that you went through. In each of these three analogies, the reader discovers that he cannot discover wisdom through any of the means or methods mentioned. Wisdom cannot be mined from digging in caverns or raised from diving to ocean depths. Wisdom cannot be bought with treasure, sold at great price, or traded in the marketplace as merchandise. Wisdom is not something that can be discovered by men, no matter how long they live their lives. Nor is wisdom automatically attained when one passes from this life to the next. Contrary to popular opinion, death has only heard a rumor of it. Wisdom is something that can only be given by God. In verses 23 through 28, we see that in order for us to acquire wisdom, we must be willing to admit our need of it. Ask God to grant it to us and accept it with open ears and hearts when He bestows it. The explanation of true wisdom in the Bible appears at the beginning of Proverbs, chapter 1, verse 7, at the end of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verse 13, and here in the middle of Job, chapter 28, verse 28. I want you to listen to all three of those verses and Take note if you hear any similar themes among them. Proverbs 1.7 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And to the man he said, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Job 28.28 in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, the conclusion when all has been heard is this, fear God and keep His commandments because this applies to every person. 
the fear of the Lord. In those three verses, wisdom is defined and described with that one phrase, to fear the Lord. In the New Testament, Christians are commanded to walk with Christ in wisdom. This morning, I want you to see how these Old Testament directions, in particular, Job chapter 28, verse 28, help us to take two steps in wisdom as we walk with Christ. First, we walk with Christ in wisdom by stepping into the fear of the Lord. If you're going to walk in wisdom, you have to fear the Lord. There's simply no other way. The fear of the Lord is an oft-repeated phrase throughout the Old Testament. Ideas communicated by this phrase include standing in awe of God's miraculous work. Like when God parted the Red Sea and the children of Israel walked across on dry ground, they feared the Lord. It includes respecting God as the ultimate heavenly authority. When God would bring judgment upon even his own people, Israel and Judah. Or when God would bring judgment upon other nations for not honoring him as holy, the people would stand back and recognize that they needed to fear the Lord. It also involved revering God personally as children revere their father. Many times throughout the Old Testament even, the relationship of God as father to his children, his people, is introduced. Children are to obey, to love their fathers. And fearing the Lord also involves being frightened of severe judgment when you stand in opposition to his power. The nation of Israel knew all too well that if they disobeyed the Lord, God would bring swift and severe punishment their way. But at its heart, to fear the Lord means to recognize His supernatural power and sovereign authority, and in turn, to surrender to Him as King and submit to Him as Master. Let me share that with you again. At its heart, to fear the Lord means to recognize His supernatural power and His sovereign authority, and in turn to surrender to Him as King and submit to Him as Master. I thought about it in terms of relationship with my own father growing up. Everybody has a father, right? I mean, somebody had to help bring them into this world. And most people have dads. There's sometimes when fathers are nothing more than a father in name only, but most people have dads, whether good or bad. You've got a dad that teaches you things and helps you through life, provides for you and your family. You learn some good habits from him, some bad habits from him. I'm thankful that God didn't just give me a father, and he, really, he didn't just give me a dad, he gave me a pap. That's what we called my dad growing up, was pap. He had heard one of his friends who had kids call him pap and he liked the idea and so we called him pap growing up and here's some things I thought about pap when I was a child in in the household wow look what pap can do 
I mean, I pick up a baseball and I can throw it from here to like 10 feet in front of me. Pat can throw it all the way across the backyard, even all the way over the fence when he gets really mad. Look what he can do. Here's something else I noticed in my relationship with Pap. If Pap said we were going to do it, there was no other option. I mean, especially when you're little growing up. Boys, we're, we're going to go to Western Sizzlin' and eat dinner tonight. It was on Friday nights. You know, they had the special going. We hopped in the car and we went to eat. I mean, we didn't fight. We didn't argue. We didn't question. That's where we were going to eat. We couldn't drive. And we certainly weren't going to walk. We certainly couldn't pay for our own food. We didn't have any jobs. Pap said it. We did it. He was in charge. Some other thoughts I had about Pap. Man, he loves me. He takes care of me. He built us a batting cage in our backyard. He plays baseball with us all the time. He buys us stuff at Christmas and for our birthdays. He loves us. He takes care of us. And here's something else I knew about Pap. Pap would discipline me. You know, I've been fighting with my brother Luke for like the 13th time that day, for like the 85th day in a row. And uh, mom had gotten on to us for like the, I don't know, I'm not even going to count. And you know what she'd say? Jake, Luke, that's my brother's name. You boys wait till Pap gets home. Both of you are getting a spanking. And I knew that we would. I was kind of scared of Pap. But when it all boiled down to it, I knew Pap. I loved Pap. He knew me. He loved me. I feared my father, my dad, Pap, at home by choosing not to fight against him. Because I knew I would lose. Ironically, I could beat him up today, but I'd never want to. I also feared Pap at home because I knew that he wanted what was best for me. Even if I didn't think that at the time, he was doing what he did and saying what he said because he wanted the best for me. In order to walk with Christ in wisdom, we have to realize that we were not made to run our own lives. We were made to be ruled by God, our perfect King. That idea might sound horribly ugly to you because you, like everybody else, likes their independence, right? We like to call the shots. We like to vote. We like to use our democratic voice. We don't want a monarch running our lives and telling us what to do, how to do it, or when to do it. But what if I told you that God is not like any other earthly king he's not like any other earthly father for that matter it's not just that he wants the best for us but sometimes falls short of his goal he is a good good father he's perfect he is a king who rules over his creation with righteousness and grace never taking a bribe not merely seeking his own self-interests he is the king who brings glory to himself through pouring out his love upon his subjects. His attitude and his actions towards those he rules are always perfect.
Why would a person not want to be the subject of that king? Why would a person not want to be a child of that father? Why would a person not want to serve that master? You walk with Christ and wisdom by stepping into the fear of the Lord. You first have to surrender yourself to God. He's got to be the one in control. You've got to step into fearing Him. When we were talking with Branch earlier this week, Branch is, is a pretty independent character if you haven't met him or talked to him, or if you haven't listened to me talk about him like 80 times. He just does what he wants to do all on his own. And so there's been times, even on Sunday mornings, you know, we, we try to teach our kids how to tithe. And so we'll give them 10 quarters every week and we give them one to put in an offering envelope and they give it in their offering at church. There's been numerous times, and Angie Brown can tell you in the preschool class, that Branch would come in with his offering envelope and just shake his head. And so you know, we, I tried to help him overcome this obstacle that you, know, you need to give to God. And so I brought him in here one Sunday morning before uh, Sunday school had started and tried to get him to put his offering envelope in the offering plate. And he just looked at me. He said, no, I'm not going to give this to God. It's mine. And I thought, well, I don't know what else to do. And so there's times that he'll turn in like six offering envelopes one week because he's decided to give all six of his quarters. But this morning... He had an offering envelope already in his Bible from last week with a quarter in it. And I had given him his other quarter to put in his offering envelope. And when I came back into the living room, he had torn his offering envelope in half, his new one. And he, sorry, his old one. And he had not used his new offering envelope. He had both quarters in his hand. And I said, Branch, what are you doing? He said, I want to keep these quarters. They're mine. I said, well, Branch, I want you to think about it like this. I said, uh, do, do you like the clothes that you wear? Yeah. Do you like the food that you eat? Yeah. Do you like the toys that you play with, your Thomas the Train and your Legos? Yeah. Yeah. Do you like the house that you live in? Yeah. Do you like the van that you get to ride in and go places? Yeah. I said, well, Branch, God has given us these blessings to enjoy, but God wants us to give back to him. So do you get 10 quarters every week? I'm just trying to help you learn to give one of them back to God. I said, well, what are you going to do with these quarters? He just held them and shook his head. And I thought, oh, man, maybe we need to go back to square one. Maybe he hadn't given his life to Jesus, right? So I said, well, Branch, you know, this week we talked about Jesus being Lord of your life. And you said that you gave your life to Jesus, that he's your Lord now. So what does Jesus want you to do with those quarters? And all of a sudden, his head stopped shaking, no. And he kind of hung his head a little bit. I said, Branch, I think you need to pray about what God wants you to do with those quarters. And then I think you need to do it. And he just stood there, just looking at me. And that's not like Branch. Branch is always moving and, and going and doing. I didn't realize he was still floating behind me in the baptistry earlier. And... Uh, I said, Branch, what are you going to do with those quarters, son? And he looked at me, not smart aleck at all. He just said, Dad, I'm praying in my mind. I said, okay. 
A couple more seconds passed. He didn't have a frown on his face anymore. I held out the offering envelope, and he stuck one quarter in there. He stuck the other quarter in there. He licked the back of the envelope. He stuck it in his Bible. As far, I hope he gave it in the offering this morning. I don't know. <laughs> but that was the battle. It was. And you might think it's not a big deal, and it, it, it's not really all that important. But man, how many battles are like that in our lives? When we say, no, God, you don't know what you're doing. Just let me hold on to this. It's mine. God, I know that I wanted Jesus to be in charge of my life when I came to him and asked him to save me and forgive me. God, I, I don't know about that anymore. We walk with Christ and wisdom by stepping into the fear of the Lord. And there's many times we don't know what that looks like. But God does. And we just have to trust Him. We have to respect Him. We have to revere Him. And even be a little frightened of what happens if we don't act out in faith and obedience. We don't want His judgment, His discipline. We choose to fear the Lord by surrendering and submitting to Him. And then the second step that this poem talks about taking is not just stepping into the fear of the Lord, but we also walk with Christ in wisdom by stepping away from evil. Departing from evil is the result of choosing to honor God with your life. It's not the very first step in your relationship with God, but it is a very important second step. Let me explain. Here's what I mean. You can choose to do the right thing, and sometimes you will. You can choose not to give in to temptation from your peers, and sometimes you will. You can choose not to indulge in selfishness, and sometimes you will. But even if you chose not to do the wrong thing, that doesn't mean you have wisdom. You can live a comparably moral and upright life, by avoiding a lot of wrongdoing. But if you do not first and foremost fear God, then you've missed wisdom altogether. Being a Christian is not about you doing the right thing. It's about what Christ has done for you. God kind of reminded me of this a little bit this week when we were, Stephanie and I were talking with Branch. We were sitting with him at, at the table at home last night at dinner time talking about baptism this morning. You know, Branch is young. He's only four years old, and so this thing was kind of like, oh, God, does he really get this? And so we, Stephanie asked him the question, Branch, when, when were you saved? When, when did Jesus' blood wash away your sins? Because, you know, we we'd talked about that. And he's, we were wanting him to say on Tuesday night, you know, when he prayed in his bed, and he just looked up with complete confidence and said, when Jesus died on the cross for me? I went, amen. All right, we're, we're done. But in that moment, he, he got it right. And so many times we get it wrong. You see, we think we get wisdom by doing what we do. We get wisdom by simply accepting what God has done for us. But we have to continue in that wisdom. 
You see, Job knew that he needed to step into the fear of the Lord, but he also knew he needed to keep going by stepping away from evil. Wisdom is continuing to walk in the direction that God has designed you to walk. In other words, you can't just say that you fear the Lord and at the same time show that you love yourself by continuing in selfishness and folly. Those two directions are opposite one another. Turning away from evil will not automatically help you follow the Lord, but turning away from evil, if you are already following the Lord, will help take you forward in faith. So I've used this illustration before when I was teaching children and teenagers, and I've found that adults understand it better too. Let's just say that God is this direction. And you've heard the call of Christ. You know you are to follow him. And so you take that step and you choose to follow Jesus. But then as a new Christian, temptation comes your way. And friends start to say, well, hey, Jake, I know you decided to follow Jesus, but we want to do this over here. And it's the opposite direction from where God is telling you to walk. But you're like, well, I want to follow Jesus, but I want to still do what I want to do and what my friends want to do too. So I'm going to go in this direction. And then you come to church on Sunday morning. And the Lord says, son, there's sin in your life and you need to repent of the evil that you've done. And you go, yeah, God, you're right. I need to take a step towards you and follow you because I haven't been living in a Christ-honoring way like I should. And so you... Take that step of faith in this direction. I might break this microphone. I apologize. And then what happens next is your friends on Monday morning or Monday night try to pull you in the opposite direction of evil again. I might break my legs too. I don't know what's going to happen. Can you go both of those directions at the same time? Can you follow Jesus and run to evil? You can't. At best, you're going to stay where you are. At worst, you're going to end up destroying yourself and dishonoring the God that you claim to serve. And so here's what wisdom is. It's turning away from evil. The King James says eschewing it. Walking in wisdom means that we choose to abstain from every appearance of evil because we know that God has more for us than sinful pleasures ever have to offer. When we step away from evil, we overcome temptation. We overcome the schemes of Satan and the falsehood that we always know what's best for ourselves. God sets the standards for what's right and for what's wrong, for what's good and for what's evil. And when we choose not to place our feet in the evil where we will spiritually slip and fall, then we step away from evil and into wisdom. We step into the fear of the Lord. We step away from the evil that we were once involved in. And we continue walking with Christ. And so here's what it looks like. Here's how it fleshes out uh, practically. Wisdom means that we turn away from drugs that promise us a metaphysical high because we find higher purpose in Jesus. Walking in wisdom means that we put away the internet pornography that appeals to our senses because we know that God's design for sexual intimacy and marriage is far more fulfilling than digital pleasures. 
Walking in wisdom means that we deny the desire to make ourselves rich, knowing that other souls are of more worth than accumulating treasures for ourselves. Walking in wisdom means that we stop cussing people out to make ourselves feel better and instead choose to build others up with heartfelt encouragement and honest evaluation. Walking in wisdom means that we don't cut corners by cheating on a test because it's easier, but we take the long route of studying to actually learn something even though it's harder. Walking in wisdom means we don't quarrel with each other in the church to get what we want, but we sacrifice ourselves for others so that God gets the glory He deserves. Walk with Christ in wisdom by stepping away from evil. You know, a lot of people are searching for wisdom today. They always have been. And many people are looking for wisdom in all of the wrong places. And they think it's the right place. The fact is that we all need wisdom. The truth is that wisdom we need is found in Christ Jesus alone. Who is himself the wisdom of God. I want to admonish you at the same challenge the Bible gives us in James chapter 1 verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. God wants you to walk with Christ in wisdom. What step do you need to take? Have you ever surrendered your life to Jesus as Lord? He's the Savior who rescues you from living in foolishness and gives you the wisdom to live your life as God intends. Do you want a walk with Christ that you've never had before? Do you want to have wisdom? You can if you'll come to Christ today. Christians, are you submitting yourself to Jesus as Lord? Or are you still holding on to a few things for yourself? Are you trying to step out? In wisdom, trying to step into the fear of the Lord, at the same time trying to walk in evil. It won't work. Jesus is the source of wisdom. He saved you from your sins, not so that you could merely be forgiven and then live however you want, but so that you could be free to live as God created you to live. How is your walk with Christ today? Are you walking in wisdom? you stand with your heads bowed and your eyes closed? In just a moment, a song of invitation is going to be played. I trust that God has spoken to your heart this morning as we've sung His praises, as we've studied His Word together, even as we've prayed to Him. And maybe God is asking you to do something specific this morning. Maybe he's asking you to surrender your life to Jesus and become a Christian. Maybe he's asking you to submit yourself back to him. You already are a Christian, but there's sin in your life you need to repent of. There's confession you need to make. There's a brother or sister in this room that you need to go and apologize to. 
Maybe there's somebody that you need to witness to. Maybe you need to identify one person in your life that you can be sharing the gospel with, inviting to church, and praying for to come to know God's Son, Jesus. I'll be standing down here in the front. If you need to come and speak with me, or if you just need to come down here and would like me to pray for you, I'd be happy to do that. This altar is open if you just need to come and kneel and talk to God in prayer privately. As God calls you today.